Hey, what's up everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This week, I'm talking with Dr. Michael Johnston from William Penn University about his work on identity and obituaries, vendors at small farmers markets, and the Tulip Queens. This is episode 40 of Untenure Tracks. Episode 40! We made it to 40! is exploring the um, identity that uh, is presented in obituaries. So I ran across um, Laughlin's uh, construction of uh, social construction of death, and I thought, uh, and I thought to myself, oh, this might be uh, something to explore uh, beyond and, and, and the identities that people create through uh, obituaries, as they are um, supposed to be a a way in which a, a person's life and story, their identity, who they are, is presented. Um, that's what an obituary is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, in addition to that, I was looking into Gary Allen Fine and his uh, sticky reputations and thinking to myself, okay, how, how could similar reputations be presented uh, in these life stories uh, of of a, of a person's obituary, and I'm in the early phases of this, and looking at the uh, literature, and my, my next phase is to start looking into these obituaries and see if, if there's any common theme that comes about uh, the lives of everyday people in rural Iowa. So, this is a very um, unique project. <laughs> how, yes. How did you get this idea, if you don't mind my asking? Uh so uh, we're hearing a lot about death recently, right? With with COVID nineteen and uh, and and death is 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 something that I think that uh, uh, is natural. We all do it. Uh, how much how much of our lives we dedicate to thinking about death varies from person to person. But I uh, I'm thinking sociology uh, of death is uh, is a largely unexplored area. And uh, would be something interesting to dive into, and, and maybe uh, maybe catch uh, catch flame and catch fire, and, and uh, a new area of sociology to explore. Very cool. Um, so, what have you come across so far in the literature? Like, how how do people, I guess, retroactively or um, uh, in a second-hand way or third-hand way, like how how is identity construction something that happens through obituaries? Uh, so what what I've uh, read most of is uh, is not with the common has not been done with the common day person everyday person. There is research out there on uh, people with a strong reputation, popular individuals, looking at the obituaries of uh, people who who have been written about by obituary writers in the New York Times. But there's very little uh, out there on the common everyday person. And I'm curious to see if there's any um, common pieces of 
about uh, about the um, lives of everyday people and how their how their stories are written in in, in the obituary. And the cool part about that is uh, is it's really accessible. The obituaries are, are can be easily accessed by a quick internet search and pulling a, a sample of, of obituaries from Iowa or from my local community of, of Pella, Iowa, to look at the the lives and the deaths of these people. Mm-hmm. The interesting piece is what I hear in the literature, and and um, which I, I think is common in all of us, is that the that dead people are often talked poorly about. It's sort of taboo to talk poorly about dead people. Really, um, so even so, let me make sure I understood you correctly. Um, you're saying that that obituaries are going to be overwhelmingly positive or or negative. Uh, I think it's. I, I think. I have a hunch that they're going to be uh, just written matter of fact, mm-hmm. and any stories that are told are uh, are going to be po- are going to have a positive spin to it. Mm-hmm. So, um, would you be considering doing something of like trying to find? So, I guess like, is there room in here for any kind of like life history work, like to to see if the obituary matches who this this person was? Yeah, and that that was something that actually came up in a conversation that I was having with somebody on Twitter the other day. Um, Dean Reyes is is his name, and he's a, a graduate student at uh, a school in Canada. And his uh, he, he was asking me this: Are you going to look beyond the content found in the obituaries? And, and I thought that was an interesting point that he brought out. And and I said, Well, I, you know, there's a possibility that I could go to the local library and make it a uh, um, use some of the strategies used by genealogists and look at the lives of stories to see if it aligns with their uh, with their obituaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting. I mean, challenging because you're looking just at at ordinary people, and I, I guess part of being ordinary is that um, maybe you don't leave that much of a mark. <laughs> it's kind of a depressing yeah. thing to say, um, but. I can see there being some frustration, right? If you're just like, well, they bought this this track of land and this year, and here the the here's the job they had, and the day they retired, and the kids they had, and and the end. <laughs> yes, and then the other piece is wanting to know whether or not, and then taking into consideration whether my goal is to be a mythbuster and to see if the if the obituary was written correctly or if I'm really more interested in the reputations of these people uh, as seen by the person who wrote the obituary the difference between the New York uh, New York Times and the and the everyday obituary that we look at in our local newspaper is that uh, in the New York Times it's often written by an obituary writer who, who has an interest in the lives of these extremely famous people mm-hmm. whereas in the everyday um, uh, newspaper, these are often written by family members who mm-hmm. who are writing down the perception that they have had of these individuals, which is a reputation that they have gained um, both from interacting with this person, but also hearing stories from other individuals in the family who have um, basically created con- created a concrete uh, sort of a reputation of this person who recently died. Yeah, it would be interesting to see how how the scale of the community relates to the community's willingness to kind of sweep stuff under the rug. You know what I mean? So like a a celebrity dies who has had maybe a checkered past. I'm thinking of Michael Jackson specifically, right? When Michael Jackson died, 
Um, I think everybody listening to this is aware of the scandals that surrounded his life, um, but when he died, it, it seemed like the public discussion around him was to sweep all of that basically under the rug, until until recently with the Neverland documentary, at least. Um, but, like, most of us never interacted with him. But then if you're thinking about some, you know, a, a rural town in Iowa, and here's somebody who died who was terrible and the community really didn't like this person for whatever reason um i I i'd be curious to see like their their willingness to kind of uh like you said not speak ill of the dead or or sit around over afternoon tea and (laughs) just run that person down again i don't know it's it's interesting though and it may be a moral imperative right of the of in terms of thinking about, well, I wouldn't want somebody to talk poorly about me when I die, so why would I do that to this person in their in their obituary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's definitely there's definitely something there. Um, but you're you said you're in the early stages of this, right? Yes, I am. Uh, but this is something uh, extremely exciting to me, and I and I look forward to seeing where this could lead. Uh, this is the the newest project. My last two project. Projects I recently uh, submitted the manuscripts for for those. One was on looking at the um, reputations and the class status of uh, tulip queens in my local community. Looking back at the last ten years to see, okay, who are these queens and what are uh, what are some common factors that can be seen across the the queen and and uh, the queens over the last ten years, as well as the royal court, which is part of a larger event called uh, Tulip Time, and it's a pat it's a it's a one-week one event, and uh, unfortunately it was canceled this year. But So what I did with this is I looked at the past 10 years of, of literature uh, in the weekly newspaper during leading up to Tulip Time and telling them about the family history and who these girl, uh, who these uh, young women are. And it was inter- that, was, that was the last manuscript that I submitted uh, on my research about Tulip Queen. And prior to that, uh, I, I was working on the uh, lives and experiences of vendors at a small farmer's market. So uh, I, I think the easiest way to frame my research is on identity and reputations of, uh, uh, of people across class, gender, uh, class and gender, particularly. Yeah, in this um, rural setting. Um, yes. So could you uh, talk a little bit about what the, the Tulip Festival is about? Yes, yeah, so it's uh, the community I live in is a uh, small rural community that is founded on a Dutch heritage. And so everything from the Dutch uh, fronts, the facades of the, of the infrastructure, the buildings, to uh, the Dutch last names of the people who live in the community. Uh, in addition to that are um, the churches in, in our community, all except for maybe two, are, uh, are Dutch Reformed or Dutch Christian Reformed. So it's a way to celebrate the heritage of the community, which in and of itself is uh, it's sort of created and constructed over time and uh, maintained over time. The, the Dutch heritage innately in and of itself would not exist without people buying into it and, uh, and creating a sort of feel 
for the for the community. Uh, it does well for the with helping the economics of the community as well because it's a large event, a tourist event that brings people from all over the United States uh, and as well as in other countries to our community to celebrate, eat Dutch uh, Dutch food, eat uh, wear wooden shoes, wear <laughs> Dutch attire. And uh, watch parades, watch the kids march in the in the parade. Um, then there's a tulip queen and her court, her royal court that uh, are selected by the community, voted in uh, based on a variety of of tenants, everything from the quality of their speech to their profile to. Uh, early on, it was a beauty contest as well, and that was recently taken out within the last five years. Uh, but it uh, um, a popularity contest nonetheless. Yeah, for sure. And in addition to that, there is there's a, a rural governor, uh, mayor of the city for tulip time, uh, and uh, Santa Claus, the uh, uh, the Dutch Santa Claus. Uh, um, part of the uh, yes, part of the uh, part of the event as well. I, I, I'm, I'm glad to say that they don't have the blackface celebration and all of that that happened uh, that was in the news recently over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's what tulip that's what tulip time is. And my focus for this manuscript was on the tulip queen and, and her royal court to see uh, who these women. Uh, young women were where their family came from, and all of them had almost all of the girls had a uh, an interest, an aspiration to become tulip queen or on royal court, and they had a family, a heritage of of uh, family members who also served on royal court. Hmm. Many of them came from middle upper class backgrounds. Their their fathers serving in professional roles, their mothers uh, uh, either staying at home or working in uh, in some service related position, uh, supporting um, uh, supporting the community. Many of the girls made mention to their religious background and beliefs and their profiles. So those were some key aspects that really stood out uh, in this piece. Hmm. That's interesting. That it's like a. a uh intergenerational <laughs> kind of uh, lineage, I guess. <laughs> like like an actual monarchy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, like, what what types of characteristics did you find? I know that you, you spoke um, kind of in a generalization about the girls, but, like, what what are some of the commonalities that you found about the, the ten, right, you said the ten that had won it since, during the time of your, your study? What What were they like? So it was 10 years, and it was a total of 10 uh, tulip queens, and then an additional 40 runner-ups, or what they call the royal court. Mm-hmm. And uh, the common factors were they uh, they came from middle-upper-class backgrounds, The uh, particularly for the queens. The, the most recent queen last uh, from my study, what was interesting about her is that she didn't have an intergenerational linkage to tulip queen, mm-hmm. and she didn't come from um, middle-upper-class background. So it's interesting to see where that might go in the future, and it might lead me to additional research on, okay, well, what about this last year uh, allowed her to get into the position she was in since she didn't have the, uh, call it the royal ties. Yeah, she is uh, the the Napoleon Bonaparte of... (laughs) She's she's the Napoleon of the Tulip Festival. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, an anomaly. It's, it's interesting, right? How did she? Uh, yeah. how, did, how did she take charge and gain the popularity that she needed in order to uh, gain the the queen role that she had in in Tulip Queen Court and the court? Yeah. So, is there are, are the the winners and their courts are are there like duties expected of them afterwards? This is like a community service, like kind of like how Miss America is expected to do all sorts of you know public outreach and community service types of things. Are, are those expected of these young women as well? Yes, uh, so once they have been selected as royal court and queen, they are expected to learn the Dutch heritage. They go through a process of training. Uh, they also are required to uh, have their own uh, attire created for the uh, for the Tulip Festival. And in addition to that, they play the role of going out and promoting the Tulip Festival. So Tulip Time Festival is is promoted by these young women uh, by going to several different uh, radio uh, radio news, television news stations across the state. They also um, have to go meet with the governor and uh, uh, the governor, as well as other government government officials, to uh, to help promote this event. So um, they're sort of the um, the promoters of the, the major mm-hmm. promoters of this event. Mm-hmm. Are the runners up? Are the runners up expected to do that as well? Or? Correct, because the royal court is made up of four uh, four runners up for um, royal court members and the mm-hmm. tulip queen. Okay. Um, are the so? I imagine that this is pretty competitive among the yes, among the is. girls. Are they are they able to kind of like are they are are they able to be good sports about it? Like after the decision is made and like play nice and, and get along and do the work that's, that's that is expected of them or is there more like conflict and tension and maybe like sour grapes so it's competitive leading up to it these are these are uh comments that were made by the uh royal court members who were runners up to the queen and they said that they uh, what was interesting to them is how how um able they were to build a, build a strong relationship and become closer throughout the uh, whole process instead of uh, feeling uh, animosity against the queen because they didn't win. Mm-hmm. That was quite interesting. It was mm-hmm. mentioned by all of them. So the process, I guess, maybe this would be a good time to talk about the process of be- becoming queen yeah. or becoming part of the royal court. So the way that it works is every girl who is who is eligible to be part of this, they must be from Pella, they must be uh, going to the uh, Pella schools, and they are um, 16 to 19 years of age, so they're high school girls, um, many of them are juniors and senior, juniors or seniors in high school um, who have been, over the last 10 years, Tulip Queen or part of her royal court. And uh, so once they are nominated by somebody in the community, they are then sent a letter and asked if they want to participate uh, in this, what I call a pageant. Mm-hmm. And uh, and once they've agreed to it, then they are voted on again. This is round two. The, um, the top 15 of the girls who are selected are then... Uh, are then um, they, they then go through a pro, um, a presentation that they have to do in front of a panel of judges, and from there the top the tulip queen and her four members of royal court are selected. So, who's the panel of judges? 
the panel of judges are um, people who are are rep- they are representative of uh, tulip time. They are people in the community who serve professional roles. Okay. In the, com- in the community. Yep. Is it does the the composition of the judges does that change every year, or? It, uh, I didn't look too uh, far into that, but some of the things that I, that I, uh, saw in there was the, uh, the names that appeared in these, uh, in these write-ups were, uh, were consistent, were the same over the last 10 years. Okay. Yep. Yep. So it must be like, a, I'm just, I'm just thinking yep. about this like practically, yep. right? So it's, yep. it's probably some kind of a nonprofit and it's the board of directors for the nonprofit serving as the judges. Yes, in all likelihood, which is why it'd be the same people. Okay, I mean, you know, just just yeah. curious. Um, yes, have you ever seen somebody who who tried to? I mean, I know that you mentioned the most recent winner had no like intergenerational um, connections to this event. Have you ever seen a girl who who tried to pull something like from completely out of left field that that would just really try to disrupt? I guess like the the typical or traditional um, styles that, that get girls elected to this court? So the content that uh, this was a content analysis so it, was oh, okay. looking at the, it was looking at the weekly uh, newspaper that was released with the profiles oh, of these uh, of these girls and one of the interesting things that stood out is there were two um, there were two young uh, ladies who were uh, who had their uh, in their profile? They didn't have any mention to religion, which was uncharacteristic. With the la- with the forty eight others mm-hmm. having some identification of uh, religion mm-hmm. in their uh, in their profiles, mm-hmm. so that, those were sort of anomalies. Some uh, other characteristics that stood out is uh, forty eight of the girls said that they were going to go to some sort of college after they graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. One girl said that she was going to go into uh, the military and um, do that prior to uh, coming back and going to college. Another uh, another girl made no mention to college mm-hmm. uh, for after she graduated. So those were some anomalies that stood out from the profiles. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the um, w- one major uh, factor that got these girls into the positions that they were in with Tulip, uh, with the Tulip Queen pageant is the aspiration that they have to follow social norms that are expected of the American high school graduate, which is going on to college or university to earn an education that will then send them on to graduate school, but eventually make them uh, honest working adults who pay their bills and uh, provide for their family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is part of like a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I just completely spaced on the word, a trajectory uh, into like middle class, upper middle class kind of Americana. Yes. Um, are all the girls white that you can, that, the, as far as you're aware? Uh, they, they had pictures with them, so um, I was able to uh, see who they were in, in living color. And, uh, all of them were white except for the uh, young woman who won last year. Really? Uh, who, yes. So not only did she not have any kind of connection to this event, she also wasn't white. That's interesting. <laughs> that's, that's very interesting. Um, is How diverse is the community? 
that this is happening in? The community is is not very uh, diverse at all. It's a uh, very um, white community. There are people of other racial backgrounds, but uh, it is it, it's a small rural community with uh, with the two major uh, call it anchors of the of the community being Pella Corporation and Vermeer Corporation. Pella Corporation, uh, where windows and doors are made, and uh, they have their main corporate offices here. And then Vermeer Corporation, where they where they build uh, large machinery, and they have their main corporate office here as well as the factories. But mm-hmm. many people commute in to work at Vermeer as well as commute mm-hmm. in to work at Pella Corporation. Okay, I mean I didn't also have a, I didn't want to stereotype Iowa, but it's yep. it's Iowa. <laughs> Correct, and, and we, right, we have large urban centers where uh, where most of our diversity exists, which mm-hmm. is the Quad Cities or Des Moines, mm-hmm. uh, Waterloo, Cedar Falls, and, uh, and and then on the other side of the state, uh, Omaha, and then uh, Council Bluffs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Omaha's Nebraska, but uh, they almost basically merge together between yeah. <laughs> With Council Bluffs and, and Omaha almost being undistinguishable from the other. This is going to come out and we're going to get some angry letters from some very patriotic Nebraskans. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> some long, uh, deep-seated uh, intention being drug, drug up here. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about the farmer's market research a little bit, too? Yeah, so... Um the farmers market. Uh, one of the uh, main things that I looked looked at with farmers market is uh, is okay. Who are these? Who do these vendors see themselves at as as uh, vendors at this large farmers market, the largest farmers market in the United States of America, which is uh, is quite interesting. It's it, it spans five blocks. It um, it was occurring every weekend on Sunday over the over the summer, and then they added a winter festival in addition to that to continue to draw crowds for different crops and for uh, and for other homemade items. And I, I thought to myself, well, this can't just be a place for entertainment. These vendors must see themselves with uh, some personal identity, and they must continue to show up every weekend. And uh, whether they're doing it for their um, their own enjoyment, whether it's a uh, an extra uh, call it extracurricular activity beyond beyond their primary job, or whether it is their full identity, both their occupation and what they enjoy doing every weekend. Mm-hmm. So what I did is I um, instead of going there, I looked at the uh, weekly uh, ads from the register of this local community and uh, went online and looked at. Uh, at all of these different businesses profiles on their website or Facebook. And one of the things that I found from their identity that was created through the, um, through what they created on their website was that, uh, yes, they saw themselves providing something authentic to, uh, to the individuals who came to uh, purchase their items. Mm-hmm. Authentic in what way? Like, what, what do you mean? Uh, authentic as something personalized, something ge- genuine, something unique uh, mm-hmm. that the um, that the consumer is not able to um, pick up or purchase anywhere else. Okay, so it's it's worth people's time to come to the farmers market because there's there's probably literally no place else in the country, much less in in Iowa, where you're going to be able to get these specific things. 
yes, in a genuine relationship that these uh, that these producers had with the food or craft item that they were uh, that they were producing for for an audience. Mm-hmm. And so, most of the people who were vending there had this sort of identity that they are almost artisans. Yes. Artisans of their craft. That's one of the things that uh, are in this manuscript that's currently being reviewed. Yep. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Did that surprise you at all? Like, were you expecting to see some kind of like almost like pseudo corporate, almost like like a like a McDonaldization, I guess, of what a farmers market might look like? Uh, what I found to be most intriguing uh, about this uh, about the study was that uh, uh, I thought it would just be something that that they were um, amateurs and and uh, not something that they would come uh, gain such a strong relationship with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seemed to be a passion of theirs that uh, that they weren't uh, willing to just willy nilly around with, but they took it seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was one of those surprising pieces that I found from the farmer's market, how uh, how salient this identity was and how strong it stood out in the in the websites they created uh, mm-hmm. for their business. Mm-hmm. So what were ways that it, that it stood out, that they were able to make this, beyond just saying, like, if you come to our, our booth or whatever, you're going to find, you know, a, a genuine... Iowan experience, right? Like, how did how did they how were they able to project that um, uh, uniqueness? So the details that they provided in the description of the products they were selling, uh, they showed that they were true artisans of the crafts that they were creating. They they weren't amateur they weren't amateurs from the sense that they uh, that they were able to uh, to talk in details about the products that they were selling. But in addition to that. Many of them talked about the education that they had, whether it be earning certificates at, uh, in the craft that they were uh, carrying out for the products that they were creating, to um, to one uh, young man who was providing organic uh, uh, organic foods, he uh, milk products particularly. He talked about how he went to several different countries and worked on farms for several years prior to coming back and starting his own business. So these people uh, were educated um, either uh, either through some formal university or college or through um, some certificate program provided by a nonprofit or for-profit business uh, for carrying out X amount of hours in the field to to earn that certificate. They were uh, they were highly educated and and they knew the craft so well that they could describe it in great detail on their website. Mm-hmm. So all of your work is content analysis, correct? Uh, correct, yes. That's where my focus has been uh, more recently, content analysis. But uh, uh, I'm not limited to that. It just seems to be uh, something that can be extremely productive in the uh, demands that comes with the uh, type of university I work for, where it's, uh, it's uh, a 4-4 uh, sort of setup, all, uh, each being a unique course and uh, requiring a great deal of prep. Yeah, no, I am a part of the 4-4 uh, <laughs> uh, team. So I, I empathize <laughs> with your workload for sure. I was just, it was just interesting because you're, I think you're the first person that I've talked to for this podcast that has been, uh, whose work has been entirely content analysis. And so, and so I was just curious if it was because of the, uh, ease of access to that type of information 
Um, or if there was something yes. that, I mean, part of your training that just, or, or something about you that made that, that type of research more appealing. Um, I'm just curious. Yeah, my graduate work when I was running my uh, PhD, a lot of um, what I focused on there was uh, interview. So uh, I am trained in an in interview, uh, and I, I'm interested in ethnography going out into the field. One of the uh, ideas that I was bouncing around prior to digging deep and uh, taking on my, my study on, uh, on obituaries was looking at this tug-of-war fest that takes place between uh, four uh, Byron and Leclerc uh, across the Mississippi where these two communities have a tug-of-war fest every year and uh, and it's a full week preparation and they train to uh, they train to be uh, the best at this tug-of-war across the Mississippi and, and, and Leclerc they're they, they uh, very rarely win tug of war fest, and they say it's the way that the motion of the Mississippi runs. So, uh, <laughs> it, Fort, Bear, Fort Byron, the people there have a, an unfair advantage, and that's why they win every year. But it's a way to draw tourists in the, into the community. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, this would be an awesome thing. Uh, this would be an awesome project for an ethnographer to yeah. walk the streets of Leclerc and Fort Byron for this for this week and for. Uh, <laughs> Uh, maybe multiple weeks leading up to it to learn the history of oh, yeah. this uh, tug of war fest, and, and then doing it multiple years to turn into maybe a larger book about uh, tug of war, and, and, and uh, maybe even making it a uh, multi-event sort of a book with with the uh, histories and the presentations of uh, the identities of these events in yeah. these different communities, from tug of war to 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 other types of events. So. This is a dumb question, but I have to ask you this because I'm envisioning in my mind like people from these two towns on opposite sides of the river, and the rope is going across the river, and and the losing team is pulled into the river. Correct. Is that how it works? That's how it works. (laughs) That is amazing. That That is so unsafe and so stupid. I love it so much. I want to go be a part of this. this I mean, I, I imagine like the profiles that you'd have to be able to come up with from people on either side would would look like almost like pro wrestling, <laughs> right? Like the the people who've been doing this for years. I'm sure there's there's guys who've been doing this forever, and just like and, and then like you know talk about the intergenerational transmission. Like I'm sure there's a an age minimum to be a part of the team, and so like this is the year that Johnny's going to be on. <laughs> The tug of war, and we got this ringer kid who moved in. (laughs) And they're both very small communities that sort of have their uh, quaint boutique uh, boutique sort of atmosphere where people are walking down the the main street and uh, eating at restaurants or or checking out the uh, American Pickers. That's one Uh of their major uh, identities in Leclerc is having a a shop there from American Pickers. That's where they got their roots from. And and Fort Byron being very small as well, it's it's uh, it's something to draw draw people to their community. Yeah, I mean, i i don't I don't teach sports or study sports, but I I know people talk about um, sports, um, both NCAA and and professional is like one of the last remaining vestiges of civic pride, and yeah. and this is very much like old school. Our town versus your town, <laughs> we're, and we're going to demonstrate that by pulling you into the Mississippi River. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. I would love to see that. 
that sounds so I don't even know. <laughs> well, and then I thought to myself, okay, how do, how uh, how could I expand that? Looking at uh, other communities, because tug of war must be something that occurs in multiple places across the United States as a large event. And I was looking at uh, so Hope College; they have a, a tug of war fest that uh, occurs, and it's a it's a competition between the juniors and the seniors mm-hmm. uh, every year, and they they have compet- uh, a, a socially constructed competition between the two juniors or seniors who is the top dog for the year. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's an interesting, uh, area of sport mm-hmm. that, uh, is often hidden because it's, it, it's not something that's on television all the time. Most recently yeah. I turned on ESPN and saw, uh, uh, a bags tournament and <laughs> everybody, uh, every person who was having, it was in this cornhole tournament. They were wearing masks on their face, so mm-hmm. it was recently. It was recently recorded. Well, uh-huh. why is bags on? Why is the Why is the cornhole tournament on? Would it have been recorded if uh, if basketball were on right now or baseball? Yes, ba- it's, it's baseball season. Yep. So, uh, and maybe not. Yeah, it's 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 supposed to be what. Uh, six weeks or so in the major league baseball and we should be wrapping up the NBA playoffs pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. ESPN is, I mean, I don't shed any tears for ESPN in <laughs> all of this. Um, but so your, your research interests are so varied. I think you must have like a record <laughs> for having the most, I mean, I'm jotting down like titles for this episode, like farmers markets, beauty pageants and obituaries with Michael Johnston. People are not going to know <laughs> what, what they're getting with you. Um, is that difficult for you to try to, to keep all of these, these very different, um, topics in your, in your head? Or is it because they're all kind of centered on this, you know, everything comes down to like the characteristics of these rural communities is that does that help you so the so i'm thinking of like social construction of self or identity management as being a uh, sort of a major major framework for what i'm looking at because i can go from uh, these are sort of hangers that i can go to and look at okay this is a community where they where they frame their identity around a specific event, uh, or these tulip queens and the identity that they are uh, trying to persuade the community as being rural in a uh, in a democratic republic. We we, it, it, we don't have the uh, we don't have the uh, experience where we have queens and kings and things mm-hmm. in the United States, but they but they are able to uh, look at the identity of what it means to be a queen and use that framework to present themselves in this pageant. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then in the, the identity of the people, the vendors who are selling their products at, uh, at this farmer's market, I think that that's a, a center sort of piece that I can say, well, I can go to all these different things and explore and see how identities remain constant in some ways, but also um, vary quite subtly from place to place. Hmm. Um, how are you? How are you able to bring these topics into the classroom? These are uh, so. That's one of the main reasons. So I work at a small liberal arts institution where where research isn't a isn't a necessary component. It's uh, the focus is made mainly on uh, service and teaching. Uh, but uh, I. I 
I don't think that I could sell myself as a as a scholar teaching in the classroom without continuing a research agenda. Uh, so being able to go out and experience uh, the research atmosphere that may be more expected of me at another university is important to me when going to the classroom to be able to tell students not only did I read this in a book, but these are some of the experiences that I have had. Mm-hmm. So how do your students respond to these topics? Uh, so uh, one of the things teaching at, at the undergraduate level is many of the students um, find things to be true because that was their experience. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a way for me to, to say uh, maybe using your sociological imagination, looking beyond your own personal experience and seeing how it might affect the larger group. And um, being in these places where I am reading the profiles of many individuals, it shows that... Uh, Maybe personal experience and personal uh, personal bias interferes with the ability to see beyond one's own personal experience, and mm-hmm. this is a way to uh, to make that stand out to them, so that they mm-hmm. can see the different the uh, the different uh, themes that that pop up from the collective. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you find that your students have any kind of like myths that they come into your classes with that you you know, like okay, I have to spend a day or two trying to either deprogram or we're just going to try to address this now because if I, if I don't, then it's going to be a problem. Like, like what kind of challenges do you experience in your classes in terms of that, that sort of pre, or I guess prejudice maybe that students bring in? So, uh, this, many of the students are coming in wanting to uh, be police officers in the sociology criminology program. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them come in with the belief that uh, that police are there to protect the community and they wouldn't be arresting the people they were unless they were bad guys, bad mm-hmm. people. Uh, so uh, the programming of it to be able to see the person as a whole and to be able to 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 see any sort of prejudice stare. Um, prejudice and discrimination that is occurring as a result of stereotypes that have been uh, institutionalized about people in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what classes do you teach? I'm just curious. Uh, so the 4-4 load in the, in the fall, this uh, upcoming fall, I will be teaching ethnic and race relations. I will be teaching... I will be teaching uh, ethnic and race relation, introduction to sociology, social organization, and introduction to criminology. And then I teach a freshman seminar, uh, which is called College Foundations. So oh, wow. uh, a, fifth, uh, a fifth course that is eight weeks. You're, and then in the, you're a busy man. <laughs> and then in the spring, it's a, it's a whole other um, set of courses, uh, mm-hmm. not a replicate. Uh, uh, replications of the fall courses. So mm-hmm. in the spring, it'll be sociology of contemporary issues, sex and gender. Uh, let's see, practicum, sociology practicum, and uh, let's see, am I am I able to think through this? Marriage and family. So those are the four courses: marriage and family, oh, wow. sociology of contemporary issues, sex and gender, and then sociology practicum, senior seminar. So, so your teaching load is as varied as your your research uh, yes, subjects. That's huh. that's a lot a lot for one man to keep all in his head. So, my hats off to you for being uh, able to. A true generalist. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I, I had taken to calling myself a generalist, but I, now clearly I can't <laughs> call myself a generalist <laughs> like I thought I was because very clearly you are the the gold standard. 
to live up to. Um, so is there any, like, any specific things that your students struggle with that you see in your, I guess, either your criminology or, or really any of your, any of your courses where, you know, like, okay, the, the students at, at your university, this is something that they, they struggle with. Here's an example from my research that they may not necessarily be able to get right away that we're going to have to work through. So, uh, every semester coming, uh, coming in, I, the students I don't think are taking sociology in high school. They probably aren't taking sociology in high school. And the closest thing to it would be, um, social studies that they take throughout their, uh, K through 12 compulsory education experience. Many of them are coming in as first generation students or coming in from, uh, at least a culture where, uh, writing, writing isn't as, uh, um, taken as seriously as what I think it used to be. Uh, I see students coming in with, with poor writing skills but and uh, and poor reading skills. And it's not, and I know it's not unique to my university. Mm-hmm. It's not unique to the university I teach. And I think that's probably something that could uh, stand out across universities in, in America and maybe elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but America, for sure. So, um With that being said, to get them into the readings and to help them understand the jargon that much of our our readings are are filled with, because we're teaching in a discipline with the expectation that students are going to eventually be able to pick up on these these terms and make sense of them and be able to use them in their own vocabulary. It makes them stronger as graduates when they leave here to be able to talk intelligently about uh, the variety of topics that, that they learn at the university and sociology and criminology and criminal justice and anthropology. These are all social and behavioral sciences that I can bring up, psychology, but they all have their own jargon and I think they're better people when they leave because they know that material. Yeah, I think that every every one of us really hopes that for, yeah. for our students as they leave. So, on that, I will I will thank you very much for <laughs> taking the time out of your out of your day to, to talk with me. Um, and um, good luck with everything. And I'm sure people yeah. are going to love hearing about your work. Uh, yeah, I hope so. I hope this was uh, what you're looking for with the with the interview. And uh, yeah, I was talking to. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So if you are untenured, and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.